Um, this is billed as the uh, Clark Clark keynote conversation. That's quite hard to say. Um, I'm calling it TikTok time instead. Uh, and um, it's a huge pleasure uh, to uh, welcome up our two Clarks. We have uh, uh, Her Excellency Laura Clark with an E, uh, who's the British High Commissioner, very English to have an, an unsounded E on the end of your name. Sorry, I can say that as I was once. Uh, it wasn't Oren with a neat, so I'm just being down a black hole here, uh, who's, of course, uh, British High Commissioner to us here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and the Right Honourable Helen Clark, a former Prime Minister, of course, uh, former um, Administrator of the UN's Development Programme, and now has the extraordinary job with, uh, as co-chair with Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, the former Liberian President, um, for um, uh, being co-chairs of the Independent Panel for pandemic preparedness and response to evaluate the world's response to COVID-19, um, a small part-time job around other things. So um, thank you hugely for being here. This is going to be wonderful. I'm just going to sit back and enjoy this. So over to you. Wonderful. Well, um, thank you very much, Rod. And Helen, it's an absolute pleasure to have you with us. And I was saying in a conversation earlier that there are some silver linings of, not, of people not being able to travel very much. And one of which is that we can pin down people like Helen to join events like this, because of course, normally you have an extraordinarily hectic international schedule. And um, Helen and I last met for a coffee earlier this year, but it was just before COVID really hit. And we we were kind of contemplating travel in the year ahead, what would happen, what wouldn't happen. And of course, we got our answer relatively soon after. Um, Helen is, um, I think, I now has what I would call an extremely high-powered portfolio career. Of course, Rod touched on some of that. Um, and I just want to give a little, um, little a bit of background. So in 2018, Helen came on our podcast. The High Commission has got a podcast called Tea with the High Commission. And we talked about the world as it was then, climate change, wildlife protection, a whole range of different issues. And then I asked my question that I often like to ask my guests, um, which was, what still makes them scared? What still makes them nervous? Because sometimes people say, oh, well, I'm, I still really fear failure or I'm actually terrified of public speaking. And Helen said, well, sometimes when I'm in a helicopter going down into a war zone, I feel a little bit scared. And I thought that was absolutely wonderful. You know, she is the most, she is a force of nature um, and also a national treasure. And it's a delight to have you on. So. So thank you, um, Helen. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, and um, so, so, you know, we, we went from contemplating travel in the year ahead to, of course, having no travel and, and being completely locked down. So we went from air miles to what I would call Zoom hours, uh, doing multiple international meetings from in front of our bookshelves. And of course, if you're me in my slippers all the time. Um, and I think that probably, even though it's an absolute joy to be back here in real life, meeting in person, some of us perhaps look back on lockdown with just a little element of nostalgia. Um, you know, from my part, you know, I was sort of struggling to combine homeschooling with helping 10,000 stranded Brits get home. Um, but I also loved the simplicity of lockdown. I loved um, the family time, the sourdough, uh, the fact that if we wanted to do something as a family, we went for a walk, the nature, the bird life. Um, so I wonder if 
I can start by asking you if you can share some of your personal experiences of lockdown. What were the highlights and, and what did you learn? Well, a big confession, I rather enjoyed the lockdown. <laughs> I didn't have to get on a plane. I didn't have jet lag. Uh, but of course, once all the international commitments kind of figured that this was the, the way of the world for the foreseeable future, they started uh, programming most of my nights. So I ended up as a night worker. And uh, heaven forbid anyone who tried to you know, ring the gate bell early in the morning uh, after, after that, because the New Zealand time zone, well, it can accommodate some things, but if you have a global uh, teleconference, uh, we tend to be either at the midnight end of it or the 5 a.m. end of it, which isn't so, so much fun. But yes, I think there, there were attractive things about the simplicity of it for a while. Uh, you could actually hear, you know, insects and birds in central Auckland. You could walk along Newton Gully without being deafened by the roar of traffic. So, you know, that was that was great uh, for a time. Uh, for me, I spent a lot of time with elder support with my father, who's 98 years and five months. So I couldn't go near him for seven weeks. So good that we have social services that kick in in circumstances like like this. Uh, but I guess like most Kiwis, I was relieved when we got back to you know, something like more, more normal uh, operations uh, here, uh, particularly because one's so conscious of the, you know, the cost to people who have lost their jobs or are going on to a, a lower income relative to what they had. And I think uh, perhaps one of the most revealing things about it was A, how close uh, so many people were to the line who'd never had to ask for help before, uh, and that included uh, so much of the small and medium-sized uh, business sector as well. We operate pretty, pretty close to the line. I think that that was sobering to see. And um, and as a global citizen, someone who normally is travelling the world, you've had to adjust your approach. We've all of us had to adjust our behaviours enormously. Which of those changes do you see enduring? How do you see us adapting our behaviours as individuals in the medium to long term? I think there'll be a lot more uh, video conferencing, uh, a lot of meetings where you just won't feel inclined to get on a plane and go to it because actually the, the video conferencing is, is pretty good uh, these days. There's so many different, different platforms all with similar uh, features. I chair a lot of meetings and what you do find is it is, it is harder to read the room. And so every uh, sort of perhaps annual meeting or board meeting or whatever it is that you're conducting, it has to be very well prepared because you don't have time on a Zoom conference to deal with a lot of aggravation, conflict and disagreement. You have to work that out uh, beforehand. So you rely a lot more on the, on the committees or breakout groups of your, of your organisational meeting to work things through because you're trying to do perhaps into two consecutive uh, nightly three-hour sessions what you would normally have done in two and a half days of meeting in person. And you, you just can't have people self-indulgent with long speeches and picking a fight in that. Uh, so, but anyway, that may result longer term and better time management of, of meetings as well. So we, we do adapt, we do adjust. 
You just don't get those little pull asides that you have over coffee or catching people as they head to the loos. And so it's that's how you true. adjust yeah, when you do that. Right. Um, Helen, you've recently taken on a new role as co-chair of the independent panel of pandemic preparedness and response. Um, and that's really focused at evaluating the world's response to the COVID pandemic and what we learn from it, what we do next. And you're doing that alongside Ellen Johnson Surley, former, former president of Liberia. Uh, now, I know it's still early days, and we were talking earlier about how you're still building the team, but I wonder if you can give us a bit of an um, insight into what you're hoping to achieve through this work. Well, I think the objective is quite simple. It is, how could we do better next time? And there will be a next time. There will probably be many next times. Uh, in a way, it's been remarkable uh, that it took a, a century for something to roll out the way this did, uh, because we're so much more interconnected now. You know, SARS could have taken off. You know, Ebola, harder to, to catch, as I understand it, but uh, even so, to have confined that in our interconnected age, largely to the three epicenter countries when you look back on it was quite a, a remarkable uh, achievement but uh, we cannot have you know economy normal you know, cycle of life grind to a halt every time a pandemic uh, gets gets away and and this one is is well and truly away i saw uh, one of Dr. Tedros's briefings in Geneva on Friday. So we're going to feel the, de the impact of this for decades. And we are. You know, in, in, in olden days, a pandemic ran its course when it had killed everyone it was going to, to kill. Uh, this one will keep running as long as it finds willing hosts. We're going to have to change our behaviour to stop that. We all, of course, have great hopes for for vaccines, but they're tempered by, you know, what we're reading, that we don't know how long immunity lasts. Uh, if you did find something that would give them immunity, how, how often would one need to be re-immunized? Uh, so, you know, it's comforting to know that the world's best scientific and research brains in this area are working on the solutions across diagnostics, therapeutics, and, and vaccines. Uh, but let, let's not hold our breath. This could become an endemic disease that we have to manage, manage around. And we don't need too many of those. Uh, so, yeah, how could we do better next time? What lessons can be learned? It, it certainly shouldn't be a name and shame uh, commission. What point would there be? Uh, let, let's keep it factual, keep it, keep it real and, and keep it constructive as to the way ahead. And, and this is probably putting you on the spot, so feel free to push back. But can you already now, as you begin this journey, identify a couple of things that we um, could do better or differently next time? Well, hindsight's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Uh, you know, and many countries will be replaying that record. And of course, politics has had a huge amount to do with uh, the nature of the response in a, in a range of, of countries, uh, you know, populism uh, and an effective response haven't gone very well together anywhere. Uh, and one of my concerns has been uh, the way 
that under the cover of COVID, uh, some uh, regimes of authoritarian character have used the opportunity uh, to squeeze opposition even further. So there are in some places some quite significant human rights uh, Im implications. Uh, I think if you reflect on, on what has worked well, transparency and being completely upfront with a population does work well. And I think one of the uh, remarkable things about New Zealand was that really regardless of politics, almost everyone bought into the, the need to, to get this done, right? And now, you know, that, that kind of unanimity only lasts so long, I suppose, in the, in the heat of a crisis, but it, it lasted long enough to have an effective uh, response. So social cohesion also becomes uh, rather important uh, in, in this. Um, but, you know, not, not every society has been as fortunate as ours in, in um, being able to pull together like that. Uh, also, not everybody can seal their borders as effectively as, as we can. And we also had the benefit of uh, it coming later. I think, personally, the decisions that were taken to uh, shut borders country by country beginning in, at the very beginning of February were, were critical in delaying the onset. But uh, once it was here, you know, we couldn't really have delayed a day longer uh, without serious impacts. Thank you. And so, as you know, we've been talking today about how we build back better. Um, what, and there's a whole load of very interesting. Uh, so every night, my children ask me to tell them interesting things um, at bedtime. And sometimes I start running out of steam because I'm tired, but I've had so much um, food for thought today. And I wonder if, um, which will keep me going for weeks, actually. Um, but I wonder if you can talk to me um, about what you think countries need to be doing and what they need to be thinking of as they, as they start setting the recovery from COVID. So, you know, around the world, people are talking about the opportunity that this presents for a reset uh, to really commit to, and I'm pleased someone mentioned in the previous uh, session, the principles of the sustainable development goals of building the more inclusive, resilient, uh, sustainable societies. And I think we have to hang out for that, you know, country by country. It's what we need to advocate for because we are living in a way which is uh, really not, not sustainable and, and doesn't deliver inclusive uh, results uh, either. Uh, I think the concern is that so many countries are so badly impacted by this uh, economically that there'll be a rush back to business as usual, almost growth at any cost, at any price, to, to try and crank the economies up again. And that's where, and, and someone again referred earlier to the uh, Nicholas Stern uh, work and other, other work, New Climate Economy Commission does show that a sustainable climate-friendly economy can be a job-rich and, and inclusive and, and prosperous economy, but it requires new mindsets. So all these voices we've heard today about the, you know, the new mindset, how you evaluate the investments that you make uh, as a business, as a country in your infrastructure, you know, this becomes in incredibly important because it shouldn't be a choice now between 
uh, you know, growth at any cost and somehow thinking that a sustainable way would be costly. We can make it uh, the way of the future. I think that's the challenge to get that, that change in, in thinking. But, but it needs to be fast and it needs to be global in scale. I mean, I still you know, look at these issues through the, you know, the old international development lens and the you know, realisation of the targets and the sustainable development goals just became enormously more difficult with COVID. I mean, you're seeing estimates of the growth in extreme poverty of anything from the World Bank's initial 40 to 60 million uh, estimate going up by the day, I think, uh, through to a report that was done uh, with support from King's College London and published by UN University of, of well upwards of 400 million going back into extreme poverty. Now, that's when there was a goal of eradication of extreme poverty by 2030. I mean, this, this has just gone completely into reverse. Uh, on the hunger dimension, uh, the head of the World Food Programme told the Security Council uh, at least two months ago uh, that they believe we are facing a famine of what he called biblical proportions. Uh, that is... Before COVID, there were 135 million people classified by World Food Programme as being at the brink of starvation. He said there would be another 130 million added to that. And I stress those aren't the numbers of people who are just, just hungry, horrible as that is. This is brink of starvation. You've got the out-of-school children issue, which is hugely extensive. There are children who will never get back to school after these lockdowns. And I might say for the girl child, that is pretty grim. That means early forced marriage. It may mean sale into prostitution, uh, early childbearing, uh, high mortality from that, you know, dashed aspirations. And then on the, on the health front, and I've, I've stayed very connected into global health issues, including chairing the Partnership for Maternal, Newborn and Child Health, uh, we, we know that uh, one of the impacts has been the collapse of health systems. So children aren't getting their vaccinations. Uh, women aren't getting access to family planning or to safe, uh, safe childbirth. We're also seeing reports of the distribution chains for HIV uh, medication being disrupted. Well, that can be a death sentence, obviously. So there are so many aspects to this crisis, you know, going beyond the health crisis to the severe economic and, and social uh, impacts, and not yet a global response to that of the scale required. No, I mean, I think it's absolutely right. And, and, it's, and it's devastating, really, if you think about global poverty, you think about global hunger, that we have made progress year after year in massively bringing down the number of people living in extreme poverty. And, mm -hmm. and just, you know, at the, at the drop of a hat, that progress uh, can, be, can be reversed. So, um, absolutely. So there's a huge amount to be done. And of course, the, I think that the international response has been impressive in terms of funding for Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, for example, uh, one of, which is one of the global events that has been, or global alliances that have been brought together that New Zealand is, of course, a part of, and the UK hosted that pledging conference. Um, but there's far more to do, and, and a particular focus, I think, for both our countries also, in making sure that once a vaccine, if 
and when a vaccine is developed, it is then made available um, as widely as possible and particularly to the most vulnerable countries. Um, Helen, you um, last year you launched the Helen Clark Foundation. Mm. Um, and a think tank, which, which right now has got a post-pandemic futures series of essays. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about the foundation and what, what it was that led to its conception. Well, the idea of it was to contribute to a policy debate in a non-partisan way, because I think in a small society like ours, often ideas just get trashed before they get off the ground because people take a political position on them and that's, that's the end of it. Uh, so the idea was to you know, produce some interesting papers uh, on ideas that you know, should, should be floated and get some wider debate. Uh, the first in the post-pandemic series was by Holly Walker, and she, she put aside other work she was doing and looked at the issue of loneliness and how that was uh, exacerbated by uh, the lockdowns. Uh, I think uh, going back to 2018, there may have been census information uh, on loneliness or some, some base survey and whatever, and it suggested that about 3.5% of New Zealanders uh, said that they were lonely most or all of the time. Uh, a survey that was done during the lockdown showed that number blow out to over 10%. So, and, and the significant thing I think Holly's report brought out was how closely loneliness correlates with low income. Because with low income, you can't have that degree of connection that, uh, that others could have. For example, Wi-Fi to the house, you know, we know that you can, you know, sort of WhatsApp the video conference or FaceTime or whatever uh, with, with the technologies most of us routinely have, but, but not if you don't have access to, uh, to what a smart, smartphone can provide through 3G or 4G or Wi-Fi or whatever. Uh, so uh, her paper made some quite interesting recommendations. Uh, not, not least about the importance of, of connectivity as something that needs to be uh, affordable. Uh, when I was um, at UNDP and supporting a, a broadband commission started by UNESCO and the International Telecommunications Union, there was talk about seeing uh, access to broadband as a human right because not to have access is to be grossly disadvantaged in society these days to, to connectivity connection with others, to information, to access to government services, to opportunity. If you don't have it, you know, you really are uh, left, left further, further behind. So that, that was an aspect of the report I found very interesting. It's fascinating, isn't it? And, and loneliness, of course, is a huge issue. Was way before um, the pandemic, as you as you said, and has been exacerbated massively by it. We in the UK, we've had a minister for loneliness now uh, for a good few years. So it's an issue facing all our societies. And I wonder then, drawing on that, if you can talk a bit about um, how you see social well-being as part of the fabric of how we build back better from COVID. Well, I guess there's, there's the framework of the well-being budget, uh, which identified areas that were positive uh, for the well-being of New Zealand. Again, I think uh, the COVID-19 lockdowns uh, did show New Zealand society at its best, people looking after their neighbours, uh, even if they were complete strangers, uh, 
uh, that that sense of community, people doing shopping for each other, making sure that you know people didn't fall through cracks. There was a lot of rallying around through all through all the networks. So I think in encouraging, facilitating, supporting uh, that community connection is incredibly important. The government agencies can do a certain amount, but in the end, if we don't have the community networks, uh, family networks vibrant, uh, we can't succeed. That's fascinating. And I think in a way the, the, the extra social distancing caused by the pandemic coupled with the increase in AI and which really is changing how our economies are working, what jobs we, we can do, are there enough jobs for everyone, which in turn turns to, well, how do you create vocations or occupations for people that create purpose and a sense of identity and a sense of connectedness? Not necessarily be economically valuable in the traditional sense of the world, but so we need to we all need to almost be th rethinking how we conceive of occupations and vocations for people, and not just thinking, well, what does it contribute to the traditional economy? Mm. Yes, but but we also need to think of the the economy. <laughs> uh, I, I reposted a. a a video from The Economist uh, two or three days ago, which talked about the 90% economy post-COVID. Uh, and uh, that's kind of as good as it gets anywhere at the moment. It's, that's where, where we are more or less now, the 90% economy. Uh, it referenced China as being at a 90% economy. Uh, but to get you know, back to the levels of employment and uh, you know, GDP per capita, uh, that we'd like, um, we have to grow that cake again and grow it uh, at a time when uh, a couple of sectors in particular have taken a mortal blow. One is international tourism, which I understand was about uh, just over 20% of export dollar earnings, and the other was international students, which was, uh, my, my estimate, about 5%. So if you knock out 25% of export earnings, you have, a, have an issue. Uh, so so what, what replaces that, I think, is, is, is the question. Now, to some extent, you know, we offset a bit by the fact that a lot of New Zealanders aren't travelling and taking foreign exchange uh, with them. And having been in and out of Queenstown Airport in the last week, I think the, the locals are doing the ski season proud down there, which is, uh, which is good, but of course doesn't make up the gap. I think uh, there will be ways to get international students back. We just have to crank up the quarantine uh, arrangements very considerably. Uh, I would hope we can get the working holiday makers back again, you know, with the appropriate uh, quarantine relationships. But above all, I think I would hope that among uh, this enormous number of New Zealanders who've come home, uh, th there's so much talent there. And I, you know, would really hope that Kiwis being the innovative and enterprising people they are, uh, that they'll be thinking about uh, wealth creation. You know, we need new sources of wealth now in the kind of economy that, that can thrive in the circumstances that we're in. And these circumstances aren't going away. They're with us for the foreseeable future. I don't detect any great risk appetite in New Zealand for loosening up on, on, on the border. Uh, you know, I've been watching closely uh, the experience of, for example, Iceland, uh, which uh, uh, opened itself to tourists from, you know, not from everywhere, but from certain countries. But already, you know, as of a week ago, they were uh, reporting about five different uh, community transmission outbreaks, which they hadn't had before. I think New Zealanders are looking across the, the ditch at 
at Victoria and thinking, heaven forbid. So, you know, we have to put our, our creative thinking caps on about, you know, what is the economy that's going to sustain and employ uh, us to the levels that we're accustomed to. And we are accustomed to quite low levels of, of, of unemployment, uh, which uh, you know, must, must remain the goal. So, yeah, time for, for smart thinking and smart ideas. Absolutely. And there's such a range of, of challenges, but also opportunities from, you know, New Zealand's largely COVID-free status and being one of the first countries to be. Of course, you can't be complacent, but exactly that thinking going on about, well, how does New Zealand position itself and recalibrate its economy? It's, a, it's a, one of those wicked and very exciting problems to try and tackle. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to, um, I mean, this has been the most wonderful day. So thank you very much to everyone who has been here and taken part and contributed. And thank you to you, Helen, for, for joining us for the, for the closing session. Um, we, we paint a bleak picture frankly, of, of the challenges that COVID presents, the economic impact, the impact in terms of development, the impact in terms of geopolitics and strengthening the strong man in places, the increase in populism. It is, we can't deny it, a bleak uh, picture, but we've also, I think, run through today the extraordinary range of opportunities that there are, should we just be able to grab them? Um, and I wonder then if I can ask you to just reflect on what you see as the real global opportunity emerging from the COVID pandemic. How do we take the opportunity and use it to make the world a better place? Well, I think you always get innovation out of crisis. And I hope that's the spirit that you know, will imbue New Zealanders that it, it's not going to be the way it was. So <laughs> let, let, let's not even think that it could be. It can't. So what, what's the next thing for us? What, what's, what's the next set of ideas that's going to, uh, to take us forward? And I think, you know, if we're being optimistic, we'd say it, it is an opportunity to refocus on what, you know, the world agreed was important in 2015 sustainability, the climate crisis. I mean, we are dealing with a syndemic of issues, right? We have the climate crisis. We have the biodiversity crisis. We have this appalling health crisis, which has led to um, you know, the full-blown economic and, and social crisis with peace and security implications, uh, by the way. Uh, we have uh, somewhere now over 79 million forcibly displaced people in the world with, with conflict. We have poverty growing. So, so obviously the course we're on has been ridiculous. So it is a time for a, for, for a global reset if we can get that, that thinking going. How, how do we uh, focus on what's got us to this point? Uh, you know, a pretty exploitative approach to economic growth uh, uh, globally. Uh, not uh, you know, caring sufficiently for the interaction between people and, and, and planet. Uh, we, we could reset. And I think, you know, probably people come to an event like this because they're interested in the opportunities for that reset. And if New Zealand can be a voice for the reset, I think we'd all feel very proud of, of that. If we could, you know, other countries like the UK also, as you say, very forward-leaning on, on the climate issues, Zach Goldsmith on the biodiversity uh, issues. You're a great host of the Gavi uh, conference. Uh, you know, there are opportunities here to, to lift, um, you know, aspiration, if you like, as to how the world could come out of this. I think, you know, a big and 
powerful country like the UK can also be a very important voice in the G20. And I, you know, remember going to UNDP at the really the height of impacts of the global financial crisis in early 2009. Who rallied the troops of the world's great and powerful countries to come up with the trillion dollar package to stop the world economy going over the cliff? The United Kingdom led by Gordon Brown. And it's time again for one of those packages, actually for a two and a half trillion dollar package according to the head of the IMF. And she doesn't have that at the moment. But uh, to stop a cascading series of collapses, you know, the world's going to have to dig deep with the special drawing rights and the, the debt waivers and the extra fiscal space and, and, and all the rest of it. And I, I think, um, you know, Britain can play a, a huge role in that. We don't sit in that league as a, as a small country. We're kind of, you know, nose pressed to the glass. Uh, but the, the UK can lead, and I really encourage it to, as it has on climate and biodiversity and the pandemic. Well, kia ora. Thank you very much, Helen. Um, it's 